do that better, in case you are like, how, where do I start praying for the persecuted church? Who is that? Who are they? A couple of websites. You can go to Open Doors or Global Christian Relief. Those are a couple of places where you can find prompts on countries and ways to pray for the persecuted church. So we'll do that together now, and then let's continue to do it throughout the week as we explore prayer together. Join me in praying. Father, it's um, probably pretty hard for most of us to think about the persecuted church, to even wrap our minds around that. We live in a place of religious freedom where we can uh, worship openly and publicly and without fear of consequences, but not so for our brothers and sisters around the world who at this moment and hours before us, hours ahead of us, will gather in secret houses and in living rooms, in huts and basements, in secret places, sometimes in total darkness. Because if they were caught, the consequences would be severe. Punishment, imprisonment, maybe even death. And so, God, we don't want to lose sight of what's happening to our family around the world in Burma and China and Mozambique and in India, Iran and Nigeria and North Korea and in Pakistan and Russia and in Saudi Arabia and Syria and Vietnam and in many other places. And so God, we pray for them now that under the threat and fear of persecution that you would help them not to draw back in fear but even in this moment you'd strengthen their faith And God, we pray that what we saw happen all throughout the book of Acts, that persecution when it came to your church to try to stop the spread of the gospel only served as like gasoline on a fire to spread it even quicker. And that persecution in this moment, God, as a part of your plan would make the gospel go forth in unreached places. We pray for the spread of your word. We pray for brothers and sisters who don't have access to a written Bible in their language. We pray for translators and distributors. And God, we pray for courage for pastors, leaders of house churches and secret movements as they put their life on the line, literally. Protect them, guard them, and help them to lead their people well. And God, we pray. Above all, for an end to persecution. We want to see the persecutors come to faith in Christ. We want to see laws change and people put into power who promote religious freedom for people to be able to worship the one true God. But until then, God, strengthen our brothers and sisters around the world in the midst of their persecution. Help them to stay faithful. And we lift them up to you now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go and open up to Hebrews chapter 3. That's where we'll spend our time together this morning. Um, But before we get there, I want to give you just a little bit of a background on this series through the book of Hebrews that we're going through, in case you haven't been here, in case you've forgotten. We don't know a lot about the book of Hebrews. We don't know when exactly it was written. We don't know who exactly wrote it. But what we do know is probably the most important piece. We know who the audience was. And that's important. Because uh, the audience tells us how to view the book. It tells us what we can learn from it. And the original audience of the book of Hebrews was a group of ethnically Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. 
They started following Christ, but pretty soon they realized, hey, following Jesus doesn't automatically lead to comfort in life. It doesn't mean my problems go away. It doesn't mean difficulties go away. In fact, they found what so many Christians over the years have found. Sometimes you start following Jesus and things actually get harder. And so they're considering leaving Jesus, turning their back on Christianity and just going back to Judaism and they can leave all of these problems behind. And so that helps you understand why the author is arguing like he's arguing. Why he would say, hey, stay with Jesus. He is better. He is better than the angels and Moses and Aaron and the high priest and the temple system and the animal sacrifices. He is better than all of these things. Don't turn your back on him. Now, my guess is, that none of you are considering going back to the animal sacrificial system at this exact moment. Maybe you are, we should talk after the service. You might have like a pet you wanna get rid of in your life, a dog or a cat, that's a different thing. Uh, still don't do it. Uh, but my guess is that you're probably not thinking about turning your back on Jesus for that. But I bet you have this week thought about turning your back on Jesus for something else. Whether it's money or power or sexual desire or social clout, we're always tempted to turn our back on Jesus. Maybe you're not ethnically Jewish. Most of you aren't. Maybe some of you are. You're not thinking about going back to Judaism, but I bet you have thought at some point in your Christian life, is any of this worth it at all? Does Christianity make any real life practical difference day to day? Or should I just abandon this whole deal and live my life how I want to live it? Or maybe, um, maybe you haven't renounced your faith or done anything that would be way too dramatic for you. But maybe for you right now, Christianity is all duty. You're just playing the part, doing the deal, showing up and doing what you're supposed to do, but it's not affecting your heart. The desire is not there at all. And if any of those things are true of you, and I'm guessing they are, then the book of Hebrews is for you because the book of Hebrews is gonna tell us this message we desperately need to hear. Jesus is better. He's better than any idol, any satisfaction, any belief system, any way of life, anything else he is better. And so here, here's what the author does all throughout the book. He kind of plays good cop, bad cop. Maybe if you're a parent or you had this growing up where your parents played good cop, bad cop with you, uh, where one comes with the positive message and then one comes with the heavy hand, you know? So we see that all throughout the book. He's saying, good cop, hey, Jesus is better. Look at all that he has for you, all the ways he can satisfies you, satisfy you. And then bad cop comes in with these warning passages. There's five of them in the book of Hebrews. And the bad cop uh, version of the author says, hey, here's all the consequences that are gonna play out if you leave Jesus. Here's the end result of that action and how that's gonna work out for you. And so he motivates them in two ways. And actually in chapter three, we have both of these. First, he's gonna start with Jesus is better than Moses. And then he's gonna move to this warning that we're actually gonna focus on in verses seven to 15, where we'll spend most of our time together. So Hebrews chapter three, let's read God's word together. Starting in verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. And, if, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence 
and our boasting in our hope. And then here's the warning, 7 to 15. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. So the big question is, why do these passages exist? Why does God warn us so harshly? Why does he say things like he does in verse 12? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Why does he say that? Why does he give that to us as his people? Does he want us to be insecure all the time about our standing with him? Does he want us to think, hey, you might lose your salvation at any moment. If you're too deep in sin or too deep in doubt, this whole thing could go downhill very quickly. What, what's he trying to accomplish? I was thinking about this this week and the point of passages like this, and I started to think about um, in parenting, one of the biggest surprises has been uh, things come out of my mouth. I say things I never thought I would say in, ever, right? And so, for example, just this week, I'll give you three examples. Um, I never thought that I would say, hey, when your sister goes to the bathroom, don't reach in and grab stuff and put it in your mouth. Like, I never thought that would come out of my mouth. And I, I, I for sure never thought that I would say that and I would be argued with, right? Like, what's the big deal? I never, I never thought I'd have that conversation. I never thought I would have to say, driving the car, stop teaching your sister how to choke herself. Never thought that would come out of my mouth. Never thought I would have to say, hey, um, if you see a dead animal in the yard, best case scenario, don't pick it up. Better case scenario, don't bring it in the house. Like, I never thought I was going to have to say that. But we, we warn our kids, right? We warn them because love necess necessitates warning. If we love someone, we have to warn them. Because I know things that my kids don't know. I have knowledge that they don't have, right? I can see the dangers. I can see the end of their actions and the consequences that they lead to. And so if I love them, I have to warn them. That's gonna be so important for you to keep in mind as we uh, read through Hebrews 3 and preach through it. It's not gonna feel like a very loving sermon. And it doesn't feel like a very loving passage. But you have to remember that God knows far more than we know, and he sees far more than we see. And so if he didn't warn us, he doesn't really love us. And so love necessitates warning. The idea is not that we can lose our faith if we don't listen. The point of these warning passages is, one of the ways that God keeps us safe, one of the ways that Jesus can say, I will not lose one that you have given to me, is that God keeps us in the faith by warning us. It's one of the ways he protects us. So what's the warning in this passage? Verse 8 and verse 15 tell us, do not harden your hearts. That's the warning. Don't harden your hearts. And so what the author does in the, the outline that we're going to follow in this sermon is in verse 7 through 11, he gives um, 
a case study for hard-heartedness. He traces the path of the Israelites and shows how they harden their hearts as a case study. And then he gives us three antidotes to that disease of hard-heartedness, three ways we can cure ourselves if we see our hearts beginning to harden. And so let's look back at verse 7 through 11. Read those again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we told you all the way back at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is the best New Testament book we have for understanding the Old Testament. And this is a great passage to prove that because we have kind of um, an inception moment in the Bible. If you've ever seen the movie Inception, this is a New Testament reference to the Old Testament in Psalm 95, which is another reference to the uh, Old Testament in Exodus 17. Try to control yourselves. I see the excitement level going crazy. But you see how the Bible all works together and how it all connects together. And the point that the author is trying to make is learn from the experience of the Israelites. Look at their journey as a case study. And he points them back to Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, what's happening is God's people have been led out of the promised land. They're safe from slavery. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've gotten manna in chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, they're thirsty and they start to complain. They harden their hearts against God and start questioning what intentions God has for them. And Psalm 95 is really just a um, summary of all that the Israelites go through in the wilderness, right? They're constantly complaining constantly critiquing God, constantly grumbling, and constantly rebelling. And it all comes to a head in Numbers 14, where God sent spies to spy out the promised land. They're so close to getting in. And the spies come back and say, they're too big. They're too mighty. We can't overtake them. And God says, your hardness of heart has led you to this place in Numbers 14. What you've said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell. In other words, they didn't make it. They hardened their hearts to the point that they didn't make it into the promised land. And the point of uh, these verses is that the author is saying to us, learn from their example. Don't harden your hearts. It's the warning that we need to hear. And so let me show you four ways they hardened their hearts, four ways they went wrong so we can learn from their story. First of all, the Exodus generation forgot God's past faithfulness. They forgot God's past faithfulness. So verse 9 said, Your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. I want you to just think for a second. Two million people came out of Egypt from slavery. Two million people crossed the Red Sea. Two million people saw uh, honey biscuits fall from heaven on the ground for them to have breakfast. Two million people saw Moses hit the rock and water to come out of the rock for them to drink. They saw all of that. They saw amazing things, but at the first sign of adversity, at the first sign of something hard happening, they totally forgot God's past faithfulness. And you know what we say when we hear that? Man, I wish I had been there, like I would not have turned away. Like if I saw the Red Sea, if I saw, um, you know, Bojangles biscuits on the ground to eat for breakfast, if I saw water come from the rock and I, I would never have turned away from God. I'm so jealous that I didn't grow up in that generation and get to see all of that. I would have never doubted, not for one second. 
But that is actually the opposite point that the book of Hebrews makes, right? We saw in the first six verses, Moses was great, but Jesus is better. The reality is, as Hebrews is going to point out later on, this is the language it uses, those things were a shadow of the reality that was to come. And the reality is, the point of Exodus was that millions of people would get delivered from lifelong bondage to sin and be delivered into the kingdom of God. The point of the Red Sea is that Christians, millions of us, would cross over from death to life. The point of manna is that the bread of life was coming to satisfy us and feed us. The point of the rock and the water coming out of it was that Jesus provides living waters that spring up to eternal life. The Israelites would have looked at us and said, I'm jealous of them. They've seen far more than I've seen because they get to see the reality of all that God has promised. They have the full picture of what God has done. But the temptation is still the same for us, brothers and sisters. We so quickly forget God's past faithfulness. We so quickly turn away from God and forget what he's done in the past and harden our hearts against him. Secondly, they complained about current circumstances. God had rescued this people uh, from slavery. You think they would just live the rest of their lives thankful for that reality, right? But instead, they complain about the food and the water and the leadership. They complain to each other. They complain to Moses. They complain to God. They just keep complaining. And the reality of complaining is that it creates calluses on our hearts and hardens us against belief in God. And so the question for you this morning is, where have you chose to complain instead of be content? in your marriage, or in your singleness, with your kids, in your job, in the state of the country? Where have you chosen to just complain? Complain against God and where he has you and begin to harden your heart. Number three, they remembered their past sins with delight. They remembered their past sins with delight. In the midst of their wandering, God's people somehow started to think, you know, we actually had it pretty good in Egypt. I don't know why we ever left. So look back at Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. It says, in Egypt, we sat by the meat pots. I don't know what a meat pot is. It's a good thing, apparently. It doesn't sound like a good thing. But in Egypt, they sat by the meat pots. We ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And then Numbers 11. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic? We had meat pots. We had all-you-can-eat breadsticks. We had charcuterie boards. We had free fish. We had it so good there. Did they really, though? Because it seems like we remember that they were actually in slavery under a people who kept making their job harder and harder until it broke their backs. It seemed like they were in slavery under a people who were killing their kids so they didn't grow too big as a people. Here's the reality of what sin does to us. It always highlights the benefits and hides the costs. Sin highlights the benefits and hides the costs. Richard Sibbs says it this way. Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. One of the things, one of the ways that we harden our hearts is we start to look back on sin in our life and think, that actually was pretty satisfying, pretty fulfilling. I actually did kind of like that. And we forget what sin costs us. And then lastly, 
they hardened their hearts when they stopped repenting. When they stopped repenting, verse 13. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Slowly but surely, what happened in the lives of the Israelites is they stopped repenting of their sin. When they sinned, they started hiding it from God instead of uncovering it before God. And the reality that Scripture teaches us all the way through is the surest way to harden our hearts is to hide our sin. It's a little bit like if you can imagine like a bucket of water. If you got some concrete and took a spoonful of concrete and put it in the bucket of water, it wouldn't look like that big of a deal. Not much would change. You might not even notice. A little hazy. If you do a few more spoonfuls, the color starts to change, but it's really kind of the same. But eventually, over time, if you put enough spoonfuls of concrete into that bucket of water, what will happen? It will harden. And sin does the same thing to us. When left undealt with and unconfessed, slowly but surely, whether we realize it or not, whether it seems like a big deal or not, spoonful after spoonful, it hardens us to God. And so we have to learn from the Israelites' example. Don't get infected with the disease of hard-heartedness. So God gives us three antidotes against that disease, three ways to make sure we avoid the same fate. Antidote number one, examine your heart and pay attention to the warning signs. Examine your heart and pay attention to the warning signs. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, or you could say, watch out, pay attention, examine yourself. And then look at that next word, it's so important. Who needs to watch out? Who needs to examine themselves? Brothers. You could translate that brothers and sisters, so ladies, you're not off the hook of the warning here. Watch out who? Brothers and sisters. Here's one of the dangers. When we read warnings like this in Scripture, we can start to convince ourselves, oh, this is for the atheist. This is for the agnostic. This is for the skeptic or the doubter, the person far from God. This isn't for me. I've known God my whole life. But the reality is the Israelites would have thought the same thing, wouldn't they? If anybody was safe, it was them. If anybody was in, it was them. And so this warning is for us. Hebrews 3 teaches us that having great spiritual privileges does not guarantee true saving faith. And so every lifelong believer in this room, every elder, every pastor, every covenant child, every charter member of Mitchell Road is for all of us. Examine yourselves and look for the warning signs. You know, um, I generally ignore warning signs. I don't know about you, but I do it all the time. When I'm here and there's a fire drill for the school, I, I do not leave my office. I just need to confess that in a safe place. I just ignore that totally. One day there's going to be a fire. That's not going to go well. When there's something wrong in my body, I just generally think it'll feel better eventually. I don't need to go to the doctor. I avoid that warning sign. But probably the best place I do it, or the worst place, is in my car. You know the little lights that come on in your car to tell you something's wrong? I don't, if any of you are car designers, can you start putting words in there? Just say, this is serious, period. That's what I need. Like a little triangle with an exclamation mark, I don't, I'm totally lost. I don't have any idea what that means. I assume it means nothing and that eventually if I turn the car off, it'll go away, right? Just ignore, ignore the warning signs. We do the same thing spiritually, that we can just ignore the warning signs, assume it'll get better and continue hardening our hearts. So let me just give you Eight early warning signs for hardening your heart. These are from uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. You're, if you're a note taker, you're not going to be able to write these all down. I'll send them to you, okay? So just look up here. I'm just going to read them. And so just hear this and start to examine your heart. 
Signs were falling away from God. They stopped thinking about anything that reminds them of God, death, and the judgment to come, and instead focus on thoughts that produce pleasure and comfort. They give up any pretense of acting like a Christian in their personal life by neglecting prayer, giving in to temptation, and not feeling any sorrow over sin. They avoid joyful and mature Christians. From there, they become less enthusiastic about church attendance and participation in corporate worship. To justify their actions, they start to nitpick and look for faults in the lives of other Christians to prove they're all hypocrites anyway and provide an excuse for avoiding church. Then they begin to surround themselves with people who lead them further into sin. Eventually, they begin to live more and more in secret sin. And then finally, unrestrained by any godly influences, they now begin to sin more openly and make excuses for their sins. And so, brothers and sisters, examine your heart and don't ignore the warning signs. Listen to this warning from Scripture. Second antidote to a hard heart, intrusive relationships. Intrusive relationships. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, Christianity is a, is a group project. Now, I say that, and some of you have terrible memories from school when you were involved in a group project and you did all the work and you got stuck with the kids who did no work. Or you were the kids who did no work, right? So, like, it's just one or the other. So, group project brings up kind of negative connotations. Not so in Christianity. The reality is this. If you were going to summarize this verse into one phrase, it would be this. We have blind spots. We have blind spots that we cannot see. The very, you know, it says um, the deceitfulness of sin. The very nature of deceit is that it tricks us and hides us from seeing the reality. There are parts of us that we're unaware of. Things about ourselves that we can't see, and we need people around us to tell us the truth. So, um, a, a, two examples of this. The first one is, have you ever heard your voice on an audio recording in your life? Like, had to watch yourself or listen to yourself? If you have, I guarantee you the first thing you said was, no, I don't really sound like that. I do not sound like that. But anyone around you who's heard you talk will go, no, that's exactly what you sound like. And you're like, no, it's so annoying. There's no way, right? Or if you've never done that, I bet you've seen American Idol before. And the first three episodes of American Idol are the, really the only ones you want to see, right? Because it's all the people who somehow have made it through life with friends and family and people who love them who never told them the truth that they cannot sing, right? They never got that message. And so they stand on stage before a watching world and they sing their heart out and we all go, that was horrible. How do you get to that place? You get to that place because you don't have people in your life who are honest with you to tell you the truth. And so here's what you need. If you want to um, have the antidote to hard-heartedness in the Christian life, you need intrusive relationships. Here's what that means. You need people who can say anything to you, especially the things that you most deeply do not want to hear. People who can offend you and point out your flaws and call you to the truth and remind you of the gospel. Like we can... We can show up here and we can even be in community groups and in journey groups and not have those kind of relationships, right? Because we don't allow ourselves to be seen, allow ourselves to be exposed where people can say, hey, um, this is kind of awkward, but have you noticed this? And it allows us not to harden our hearts to sin. I um, saw recently that uh, there was um, ChatGPT did the first all artificial intelligence worship service. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody else, because that's about my limit right there. That's all I got. 
but 300 people came for uh, Avatar to lead people in a worship service and just to sort of see uh, the, whole, the whole thing. And I think people came probably because it's new and they just wanna see what was happening, but I also think it speaks to our hearts and how we view church because we have this creeping notion that church is more or less a place where we come to passively consume religious content, where you just come and sit there and listen to me talk. But the picture in Hebrews that what the church actually is, is a group of people who surrounds you, who are intrusive in your life because they don't want you to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and they wanna make sure you get home. And so they tell you the truth and they encourage you and they remind you of the gospel and we need each other. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. And so we have to be intentional about having intrusive relationships. And then lastly, third antidote to a hard heart, keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, important word, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do we know that we really belong to Christ? if we hold our confidence to the end. Not that we earn belonging to Christ by persevering, but we prove that we belong to Christ by persevering. We can't lose our salvation, but if we don't keep moving, if we don't keep going towards the finish line and putting one foot in front of another, we show that we probably never knew Christ in the first place. And so the way you can be secure in your faith is not looking at how you started, but how you're currently running. Are you still following Jesus one foot in front of another? I ran a marathon one time, don't ever do that. People tell you to do it, they're lying, okay? This is the truth. It's me being intrusive in your life, don't run a marathon. Um, but in, a, in marathon training, they only let you, well, who's they, what, let me rephrase. They tell you to train up to mile 20 and no further, because apparently you're not supposed to run 21, then 22, then 23, that's just bad for you. You're supposed to stop at 20 and then somehow figure out the last six miles when you race, I don't know. So I, I, I get to the marathon, right? And I've run 20 miles. Jen was at mile 20 waiting on me with like, I don't know, a sign or something. And, and she was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I feel amazing. I'm running faster than I thought I was gonna run. I'm pretty sure I'm about to set some sort of world record. Like, this is incredible. I feel so good. And then I got to mile 21 and my body shut down on me. It rejected everything about me. It wanted no part of me. I was cramping in places I didn't even know you could cramp. And then I made a massive mistake. I stopped to stretch. I just thought, I just stretched for just a second. My hamstrings were feeling kind of tight. And you know what my body thought? My body thought, thank goodness we are done. And it started shutting down. So then I've got a choice, right? Because there's still five miles to go. Okay, that's a long way. Uh, I, two things motivated me to keep going. One, a Marine in a 50 pound weighted vest passed me. And I thought, if he's gonna finish, I am going to finish, right? The other thing that motivated me was thinking about the finish line. Once I cross the finish line, I can lay down wherever I wanna lay down. I'll never run again, right? Like I will have made it. 
I'll eat whatever I want to eat and I'll enjoy the benefits of this till the very end. That's the third antidote to hardening your heart. Do you wanna know if you're still with Christ? The question is, are you still putting one foot in front of the other focused on the finish line? Are you still moving towards Jesus? If you are, it doesn't matter if you're crawling on your knees. As long as you're still going, you're with him, and you can be confident that he is with you. And so, brothers and sisters, don't stop running. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So let's just summarize it this way. If God speaks, listen to him. If he leads, follow him. If he commands, obey him. If he convicts, repent to him. And if he promises, trust him. He loves us, so he warns us. You know, um, I was telling you about my kids and the warnings earlier. A, a couple of weeks ago, Jen warned our oldest daughter about something, probably potty-related. That's what it usually is. Hey, don't, don't do this. And she's just, like, broke down crying, okay, because Jen got, like, raised her voice for the first time ever. You know, it's a very, very terrible moment. And so she's weeping in her bed, and I went and found her, and I was like, what's wrong? And she, she said, I thought I was special to mom. She literally said that. Because she assumes that the warning means that mom doesn't love her. But the reality is, because mom loves her, she has to warn her. Because God loves you, he warns you. Not to make you fearful, but so that you'll look and be honest about where you really are. Jesus is better. He really is. Let's pray.